Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship in reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please open your Bibles with me now to the book of Leviticus. Our scripture passage is going to be found on page 88. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles that are in front of you, um, Leviticus chapter 10. And our text that we're going to be reading together this morning deals with a major spiritual scandal at the heart of Israel's worship. And if you've ever lived through a major spiritual scandal or witnessed one even from afar, you know uh, that the the problems that arise from a spiritual scandal, such as the one that we're going to read about today, they're always widespread. Uh, The damage always goes out beyond merely the individual that's at the heart of it. Usually other people are, are drawn into it and experience pain as a result of it. We could take the story of Karl Barth, for example. If you've never heard of Karl Barth before, that's okay. Uh, Here's what you need to know for today. Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians of the entire 20th century. It's really hard to overstate how impactful he, he was in his work, in his writing, his work, his biblical studies, changed the course of, uh, of biblical studies for generations after him. Um, he was also very involved in the church. He wrote passionately about the centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures and in the life of the church. His stance against Hitler during World War II and everything leading up to World War II caused him to be uh, banned from Germany. He was unable to publish, unable to speak in Germany. He had a, a large hand in drafting something called the, uh, the Barman Declaration that the German Evangelical Church put together. This was a vigorous no to Nazi propaganda within the church. Uh, And then in addition to all of that, he he penned what is widely regarded as one of the most significant theological works of the entire century. This was his magnum opus, Church Dogmatics, a sweeping 12-volume, six-million-word series. And the entire time that he was doing all of this significant ministry... Unbeknownst to the general public, he was having a decades-long affair with his assistant in full view of his wife. Again, this was not well-known at the time, so people revered Karl Barth for, for decades. It wasn't until 2017 that the entire scope of his infidelity came to light. And needless to say, it caused a huge stir. Those very people who would cherish Karl Barth and regard him as a theological mentor uh, had to personally grapple with these shocking revelations and questions were asked publicly. How are we to square his passion for Christ with his tolerance of explicit sin in his own life? What are we to make of his theological developments and theological contributions now? And most importantly, how does this impact my faith? How how does this impact my own experience of God? 
Maybe you've asked questions like that before in your own lives, in, in your own experiences. Every single time a cherished author or a beloved pastor or, or even a close influential spiritual friend, any time any of these individuals has a profound moral failure, the resulting scandal impacts our own faith personally. And that's the story in Leviticus chapter 10 this morning, friend. In Leviticus chapter 10, unfaithful priests bring an unfaithful offering and their scandalous behavior puts the entire community's salvation at risk. The people's faith is deeply impacted by it and it's a sobering message for us. It's a sobering message that reminds us of the tremendous cost of sin in stark and vivid terms. So be aware of that as we read our scriptures today. There's, again, stark, vivid imagery about the cost of sin. But even in the midst of scandal, there's grace. There's still hope for God's people because God does not abandon his people. If we remember this morning the theme of Leviticus as we've studied it so far, he has made a way, right? The Lord has made a way and God will not let a few unfaithful priests ruin that for the rest of his people. To riff off of an article that I read recently, people are still people, but God is still God, and his mercies shine out even in the darkest of times. And so, brothers and sisters, let's turn our attention to this text as we hear of a priestly scandal. Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses." And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord had spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, Take the grain offering 
that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel." The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this sobering message of sin And we ask that it would do its work in our hearts to bring out our own sins, help us uh, to not be callous towards sin this morning. And at the same time, I pray that you would prepare in our hearts a longing for grace that would be met in the cross of Christ. So teach us, O Lord, of your holiness and also of your mercy so that we would be able to drink deeply of it this morning and find grace in our time of need. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it doesn't matter how many times I have read that text, it's still troubling. It's still difficult for us to hear. It's what a tragic turn of events has taken place in Leviticus chapter 10. Let's pause for a minute to remember some of the details. The morning that we experience in Leviticus chapter 10 began in Leviticus chapter 9, one chapter back. It's the opening worship service for the tabernacle. The priests are freshly ordained. The tabernacle is officially open for worship. The priests make the first sacrifices ever in the presence of the gathered people of Israel, and something absolutely amazing happens. God shows up in the midst of his people. Here, the last verse of chapter 9. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This was a, a joyous, wonderful experience of the Lord's presence. And it immediately turns sour Chapter 10 opens with a 
terrible story. Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron the high priest, bring unauthorized fire before God. And then in similar language that we heard in the end of chapter 9, here now the result, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. It consumed them, not the sacrifices. They were consumed by the fires of God and they died before the Lord. We've heard it before, and we'll hear it again, that sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. But up until now in Leviticus, that's only been theoretical. Now we see it. We see the truth of that statement. Sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. This is a vivid picture of the terrible cost of sin. Sin is costly. Sin is costly on a a personal level. Nadab and Abihu died. They went before the Lord, they approached God disobediently, and they lost their lives as a result of it. Now, we don't know exactly what they did. The text just says that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So they may have used the wrong kind of incense. They may have just grabbed the wrong thing. Uh, they, they may have taken the coals from the wrong place. They may have just done it at the wrong time. We don't know exactly what they did, and we don't know exactly why they did it. Maybe they were jealous of Moses and Aaron and wanted to barge into the tent to see God for themselves. Maybe they were drunk. Uh, verse 9 immediately prohibits the use of wine in priestly service. And so many scholars suppose uh, that Nadab and Abihu were under the influence of alcohol. And that uh, caused them to do this brash action of off- offering unauthorized fire to God. Maybe they were just overeager. We don't know what exactly they did. We don't know why exactly they did it. The only thing we know for certain is God's assessments. It was sinful. It was a sinful action. If we compare uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we'll quickly see that one of these things is not like the other. Uh, Chapter 8, 4, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. Chapter 9, verse 10, Aaron offered the sin offering as the Lord commanded. And then chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu offered God fire, which he had not commanded them. And if you remember our definition of sin from earlier, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. This was sinful on both of those accounts. Nadab and Abihu did not conform to God's ways. In fact, they explicitly transgressed the law of God. It was sinful, and sin is costly. Sin is costly personally. But again, it's not just limited to the personal cost. One of the terrifying aspects of sin is that the cost spreads and other people are damaged by it. Sin is also costly to the family. Aaron lost two of his, old, two of his sons, his two oldest sons. We hear several times then throughout the text that his remaining sons are called that. Aaron's remaining sons, just to highlight the loss that Aaron had to suffer. And because he was the high priest, he was unable to bury them. He couldn't come near dead bodies. He couldn't touch them. He couldn't weep over their deaths, over uh, them. He couldn't bury them. 
So Aaron's cousins have to come and remove the bodies from the presence of the sanctuary. They remove the bodies in their coats, these beautiful ordination robes uh, that are now singed and tarnished. They're now the burial garments, while Aaron just has to watch silently so that he doesn't appear to visibly disagree with God's righteous judgment of their sin. I cannot imagine his agony. This is a terrible toll for Aaron and the family. And then beyond that, sin is costly to the entire community. The people have now lost two of their priests. They had to wonder, what does that mean for our sacrifices? Are we still going to be able to draw near to God if our priests are dead? What does that mean for our experience of God? Like I said earlier, any time there is a public scandal in the spiritual realm, damage is widespread. The sin of spiritual leaders is especially costly to the community. Friends, sin is costly. We need to remember that. We need to remember that sin is costly. Likely, many of us here in this room heard this account and we think that God was being too strict. We hear what happens to Nadab and Abihu, and we think to ourselves, this doesn't sound like a very serious offense. Why did God have to be so harsh? But think of it like this. In our culture, we intuitively understand that we need to respect the presence and the personal space of those in extreme leadership. So if you barged into the president of the United States office, Without an official summons and an official invitation, you would experience swift and severe punishment. You would. You, you can't just barge into the president's pre, uh, presence. We, he may be our president, but we are not entitled to immediately access his presence. You have to approach him on his terms. And so we do not run up to the president directly, trying to directly gain access to him in like the middle of a parade. When we see the motorcade going by in the streets, we do not try to run up and knock on the window and say hello. We don't pay a personal visit to the president's house unannounced. Again, we don't do these things to our leaders. And if we don't do that for our human leaders, how much more should we do that with God? How much more should we respect the space of our God? God's presence, God's house deserves to be honored. It is a grace to be near to the Lord. We are not entitled to his presence. And it's easy for us to forget that, right? I think it's easy for us to hear a message that God is merciful to sinners and for us to then sort of warp that into a message that says, God owes me mercy. That I'm then entitled to just demand mercy from God at any point in time. The German poet Henrik Hein summed it up well when he said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. And that's a dangerous message for us. It's a dangerous 
message. Because if we start to think that we are entitled to God's mercy, entitled to God's presence, then we will take sin lightly. We'll try to approach God cavalierly with presumption in our hearts, and that only leads to our harm. This passage warns us God will be sanctified, meaning that he will be viewed as holy. His holiness will be honored. God will be glorified, and he'll be glorified either as his people approach him obediently and give him glory, or as his righteous holiness goes out and judges sin in justice. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. It's not like God is angry in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament. In Acts 5, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira approached God's presence with an impure offering and they died. And then in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some of the Corinthians had been practicing exclusion and gluttony and drunkenness during their worship service at the Lord's Supper, and some of them died. God, in both Testaments and now, God is still holy, and sin is still costly. It's costly to us personally. It's costly to our families, to our loved ones, to those close to us, and it's costly to our communities. And so we must heed the wisdom of John Owen when he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a helpful lesson for all of us. And it's especially important for us to hear on an ordination Sunday for those who are in positions of leadership in the church, here in the church, this passage should humble us. Uh, It's a clear message. Spiritual leaders cannot expect God's blessing on their ministry if they walk in unrepentant sin. And so it's a message for me, and it's a message uh, to you, and it's a message to the elders and to the deacons of the church. To all who are in leadership here at Christ Church of Arlington, we must take this text seriously. Sin is costly. And, and then the costliness of sin makes us hunger for grace, right? And because when we hear about the cost of sin, if we're honest, every single one of us recognizes that we don't measure up, that we've all stumbled in one way or another. And so we might wonder to ourselves, you might be wondering even now, so does Leviticus 10 require perfection? Is that the message of this text? Do I need to be perfect to come to church? Do I need to be perfect to try and be near God? If perfection is the standard, what's our hope? And here's the hope. Here's the hope for us in this passage. People are still people, but God is still God. God is holy and just and merciful. In his mercy, God gave Aaron a community to support him in his needs. Verse 6, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes lest you die and then wrath come on all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. This is a beautiful picture of the community of faith in action. Aaron, the high priest, needed to remain silent, but Aaron the dad needed to grieve. 
He had grief that he needed to express. And so God says, you stay silent. Let your brothers, let the community of faith grieve this death on your behalf. Now that might not sound 100% emotionally satisfying to us, but don't miss the tenderheartedness of God at this point in time. God saw Aaron's pain and he provided a way for Aaron to experience emotional support through the community of Israel. Second, in his mercy, God recommissioned the priests. If this were simply a divine temper tantrum, we could imagine God sort of rejecting all of the priests and slamming the door to the tabernacle and saying in a rage, did everyone get out of my sight? But that's not what happens here. That's not what happens. God does discipline the two people that directly transgressed his laws, but then God recommissions the rest. Verses 10 and 11. And remember, at this point in time in verse 8, we hear that the Lord spoke to Aaron. This is a direct communication from the Lord to Aaron. Every single other time in Leviticus up till now, it's always been either the Lord speaking to Moses Or sometimes the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. Now, for the very first time, the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. And here's what he says. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and, or the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This is a high and noble calling. That word distinguish that we hear in this, this text, distinguish between the holy and the common, it's the exact same word used in Genesis chapter one to describe God's acts of creation. In the creation account, God separated or divided or distinguished light from darkness, day from night, heaven from earth, and now he tells the priests in exactly the same language, keep that work up. Keep it up. Do my work even now in the people. Divide, distinguish between holiness, unholiness, cleanness, uncleanness, so that the people can become more like God himself and enjoy his presence. That is quite the commission. And then in verses 12 through 15, Moses reminds the priests of their sacred duty and their sacred privilege. They needed to eat part of the Lord's offerings. They needed to eat part of the sacrifice. As we've seen already in Leviticus, and we even hear hints of it in this passage, the sacrifice was not complete until the priests ate from it. The priestly act of eating was like a visible assurance of salvation. When the priest ate from your food offering, it signaled that the Lord had accepted your offering and therefore had accepted you. And so the priests needed to eat to sort of complete it. But we can imagine at this point that they've lost their appetite, right? And they've probably wondered if they're even worthy to eat from the Lord's holy food offerings. Maybe they're tempted to turn inward and forget their holy ministry. And so Moses calls them back. He says, eat the food. Take up your holy calling. So God provides comfort and support for Aaron. God recommissioned the priests. And finally, in his mercy, God accepted the work of faithful priests. God accepted the work 
of faithful priests. In verses 16 through 20, Moses follows up on his encouragement and his instruction to the priest, you need to eat the sacrifices. He diligently inquires about one of the sacrifices in particular, the sin offering, and he makes a very troubling discovery. There's nothing left to eat. The entire thing has been burned up. There's nothing left for the priest's to eat, and Moses at this point is furious. And I have to think that we have to have a little bit of compassion for this poor guy at this point. I I imagine him, it's it's a little bit, uh, it's far more tragic than what I'm about to say, but it's almost like he's the general manager of a store on the grand opening, and everything is just falling apart. This grand ceremony that was supposed to be joyful and wonderful, everything is just falling apart before his very eyes. First two of the priests die, And then he discovers that the sin offering, which was the entire point of this ceremony, has been mishandled. It's a tragedy. It's terrible, a disaster. Moses is beside himself. Again, if the food offering isn't eaten, the sacrifice isn't complete. And so in Moses' mind, this means that the people have not been atoned for. And it's very, very bad for them because the presence of the Lord is there. The people are still in their sin, their forgiveness, their safety, their faith. It's all at risk. And at this point in time, as, as Moses is sort of chewing out Aaron's two, two remaining sons, trying to instruct them, why didn't you do this? That's when Aaron speaks. It's the only time he talks in this chapter. And his words show us a, a wise and a humble priest. He reminds Moses that there are actually two kinds of sin offerings. There's a sin offering for the people, and there's a sin offering for the priests. And here's what happened. When the priests made a sin offering for the people, they needed to eat part of the sacrifice. It's true. But when the priests made a sin offering for their own sin, they didn't need any of it. They burned the entire thing up. And so Aaron says, look, we originally made a sacrifice for our sin as priests, but then my sons sinned against the Lord. And then I worried that their sin may have come onto the entire priesthood. How could I offer a sacrifice for the people's sin while ignoring our own? Would God have been pleased with that? In effect, Aaron made a line call. He made the decision at the, at the very point of it to burn the entire thing because both the priests and the people needed forgiveness. And it's pretty hard to argue with that kind of logic. And Moses has nothing to say to it. Verse 20, when Moses heard that, he approved. That means that the sacrifice was handled properly. The priests and the people were then forgiven. And it's tremendous news. Everyone there can breathe a huge sigh of relief. The tragedy of the day did not cancel out the grace of God because God accepted the work of his faithful priests. And that's the hope of the message for us, friends. Does Leviticus chapter 10 require perfection? Do we, do you need to be perfect in order to come to church and enjoy God's presence? No, you just need a faithful priest. And you have one. Praise God, we have Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, who was wise And humble, like Aaron, like Aaron, he made a good sacrifice. In fact, the best sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. 
And because he was completely sinless, he didn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sin. His sacrifice was 100% for us, and God accepted it. And that means that you are forgiven in Christ. And now, when you approach God in the name of Christ, we're not barging into the presence of God unannounced or uninvited. No, in fact, in Jesus Christ, God throws open the doors to his presence and says, come on in, I want you near to me. That is the wonderful proclamation of grace through Leviticus chapter 10. The Lord does want his people near, and so he's provided a priest in order to make that happen. And so here, the invitation for you in Leviticus chapter 10, here's the invitation. Remember your sin and experience the grace of Christ. Remember your sin and experience the grace of of Christ. Remember the cost of your sin. Remembering the story of Karl Barth's infidelity, Gospel Coalition writer Samuel Parkinson gives this advice. He says, Don't settle for impious theologians. Don't settle for impious pastors. And don't settle for impiety in your own life. Brothers and sisters, Nadab and Abihu teach us the very same thing. Don't settle for impious spiritual leaders who break God's laws with impunity while at the same time demanding that you submit to them in obedience. Don't tolerate that. And don't settle for impurity and impiety in your own lives. Don't take your sins lightly. Don't come to God with entitlement or with presumption. Instead, repent. Humbly ask God for forgiveness as you confess your sins. And then while you remember the cost of your sin, please pray for your spiritual leaders. As James chapter 3 verse 1 reminds us, God will judge us with greater strictness. And so, please pray for us. Please pray for our faithfulness, even as you pursue your own faithfulness. Leviticus chapter 10 is a vivid portrayal of the cost of sin, but it points us towards grace. Because the New Testament has an even more vivid portrayal of the cost of sin, the cross. If you want to know the true cost of your sin, just think about the cross, God's own son, bleeding, dying. That is how much your sin costs. And Jesus paid that price for you as your high priest. And so after you load your heart down by remembering the cost of your sin, then release that by experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ. Soak your soul in the good news of salvation. The sacrifice of sin has been made and accepted. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you, brother, sister, you can breathe a sigh of relief. The scandal of sin has been dealt with once for all. And our high priest has been faithful. And so we can experience God's presence both now and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message of uh, the challenge of sin and the cost of sin, but also a portrayal of your grace. Thank you for being you in spite of the sin of 
your people. Thank you for being both holy and merciful. And I pray now that as we continue to go about our lives and our day and even our worship service, that we would take this to heart and that we would enjoy your mercies in Jesus Christ, even as we look to you for the forgiveness of our sins. Bless us now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.